Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they had no pain, their bodies are sound and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not played like other people. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues range over the earth. Therefore, the people turn and praise them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Such are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued, and I am punished every morning. If I had said, I will walk on in this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of, our ch of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You made them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. On awakening, you despise their phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and arrogant. I was like a brute beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me with honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire other than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to those who are false to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 20. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow, and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns, or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, 
but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus will you know them by their fruits. Amen. It's heartbreaking. Um, recently I was walking from here to the station and following us uh, was a young man. He was trying to persuade somebody, anybody, to give him whatever it was he thought he was needing. And he was shouting much more loudly than people often do in that situation, but it was what he was shouting that was so hard to hear. Why has this happened to me? I have never done anything wrong. And that was his constant refrain. Now, there's a whole host of reasons we could talk about, about why he was in that situation of need and vulnerability and therefore what the most appropriate way to answer his cry was. He clearly was in need of some kind of care and support. But it was that heartfelt shout that has remained with me so painfully. I've done nothing wrong. Why has this happened to me? And it's one of the central themes of this psalm that we're considering this morning. This psalm is what's known as a, a, technically as a wisdom psalm. That is, it fits into the whole genre of writings that are present in the Hebrew scriptures that speak of what it is to live as the people of God. We see it in some of the psalms. It's there in the Proverbs. Um, it's also there in some sections of the Prophets. But the psalm is also a psalm of lament. There's complaint and there's struggle to understand what God is doing and what is going on in the world. And then it's a psalm of faith and praise. And actually one of the best ways of understanding it is to use the categories that I was talking about at the beginning of this series, um, the writings of Walter Brueggemann, who argues for this pattern of orientation Psalms that speak of being at home in the world, being secure in God's keeping. Of disorientation, words that speak of pain and struggle when it all ceases to make any kind of sense and things fall apart. And of reorientation, of the discovery of a new faith and a new kind of faith in God that is transformatory. And the psalm doesn't fit any one of these categories, rather it expresses the whole journey. And so it can keep us company on that journey if we will travel with it. And to be honest in our faith, to let the call of God deeply touch us, really meet us, we will need to travel that journey. The first verse is a deeply orientated statement. Truly or surely, God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. That's, that's where it starts. That... Um, that first word, truly, surely, is, is a kind of countering word. It's a word that says, you may say, you know the house of cards, you may say that, I couldn't possibly comment. Well, it's, you may say all sorts of things, but truly this is what I believe. Surely in the light of faith and tradition, experience and conviction, God is good to the upright. It's a word of faith in a world of unfaith. Whatever is going on, we can believe, we can trust, we can commit ourselves to the truth that God is good to the upright. It's what this verse is saying. It's a word we say when we come to this kind of gathering in our kind of society. For most people in our city, 
for many of us, for most people in our circle or our family, that we are here at all, that we have chosen to come here this morning is weird and makes no sense. Surely, anybody of any sense or intelligence or engagement with the real world will know that believing in God is nonsense. And there are many, many people that we know, the majority for us, most of us, of the people we know, know and experience that they can get on pretty well and actually probably better without God. And by being here, by entering into the expression of worship, by standing in that long community of faith, we are saying truly, surely, in that countering sense, it's different. God is good to the upright. And the upright for the psalmist is the community of those who do what is right and good in God's eyes. There's a balance here expressed. On one side, those who do what is right, what is required, and on the other side, God and God's blessing. And it balances. For those who do what is right, who are faithful, who do righteously, then there is the goodness of God, the blessing of God is guaranteed. Truly, God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. It's a statement of faith to a faith community in a world then as now, of unfaith. And it is for any faith community an articulation of a deeply felt orientation in the world. If we play by the rules, whatever we understand the rules to be, we should be okay. That's the bargain. That's the way we feel intuitively that things ought to be. And those within the community of faith can feel it even more than others because it is there in our faith story. It's there in the heart of our conviction about how God works. It's there in the early stories of the Old Testament. See, I set before you death and life, blessing and curse. Keep the commandments and God will bless you. Behave well and uh, daddy will give you a sweetie. Or the Lord is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. It's a statement about orientation, about fitting in the world. The world works according to certain rules and structures which are as immutable as the laws of physics. And as long as we do what we're supposed to do, work with the good and the just and the right, then we'll be fine. We'll be blessed and secure. And it's not just people of faith who believe that. It takes root out in our world because it reflects a very deep sense of how we feel the world should be. We've structured our society around it. Work hard, get an education, keep the laws, do the right thing by your family, and everything will be all right. We tell youngsters, do well at school and there'll be a job. Get a secure job, save, be sensible, and you can buy a home. Be kind and loving and look good and behave in a certain way and you'll find a partner who will love you and cherish you and settle down for the life that you want. Pay into your savings and you'll have a good pension. Come to church and be good and you'll be blessed forever. God is on our side. The power of God is accessed through behaving in ways that this parable approves of. But the problem is, the problem that the psalmist found, the problem the man on the street knew in his bones, the problem that each of us have known somehow is that there is actually a different story in the world. One where, as the psalmist says, the wicked are prospering. They have no pain. They are sound and sleek. They're not in trouble. They're not plagued like other people, which is to say me, the writer of the psalm. They have enough to eat that their eyes swell out with fatness. Okay, in a society where obesity is a problem, that may not sound like a good thing. But this is written in a subsistence economy. And the psalmist says, those who are wicked have all they need and more. They are thriving. 
They are not keeping the rules and they have everything that was promised to me. I've worked hard and got my qualifications and there's no job. I've saved and been sensible and people are exploiting the market so I can't buy a house. And those who haven't are doing quite well, thank you. Where's the blessing in that? What does the faith statement mean in the face of that? And it gets worse as the writer sees it. These wicked that the writer perceives are not even worthy recipients of the good things that they have. They are prospering through arrogance and violence and oppression. But instead of being blamed for it, instead of all right-minded people resisting them, and instead of the punishment of God overcoming them, the people turn to them and praise them, and they are at ease and their riches increase. And they go so far as to argue that their success shows that God is not interested, that all the keeping of the rules and living in accordance with the will of God is pointless, because that's not how you get on. That's the world the writer sees. And the writer is angry and disappointed and frustrated. In vain have I kept my hands clean and washed my hands in innocence. They get all the stuff I was promised. And it's not even that the writer hasn't got the riches and powers that they have. It's even worse than that. All day long, I am plagued and I'm punished every morning. I'm doing all the right things and I'm not only not getting the blessing, I'm getting into trouble. I'm blamed, I'm punished, I'm ill, whatever it is that, that's being spoken of in that. I've lived well and I've cared for people. I've been all that I'm supposed to be and I'm ill in ways that can't be treated. I've done nothing wrong. Why has cancer hit me? I've loved and trusted him and he's gone off with someone else. I've kept the rules and it's not only gone right, not gone right, it's actually gone disastrously wrong. It's utterly disorientating. It makes no sense. It's not how we think the world should be. And for one schooled in the surely God is good to the righteous and the pure in heart, it is deeply disturbing to come into contact with this experience of the world. It's disorientating and it is surprisingly seductive. Here is a vision of the world that shifts the perspective on the horizon. And if we're honest, it's enticing. It's there. The psalmist is right. The people who live for themselves as if there is no God are doing fine, thank you. It's very attractive, and we are less than honest if we don't at least admit the attraction of what we see working. And the writing of the psalm is honest. He is beginning to consider this as a viable way of life, and why not? It works. If we look at the world, it works. They have no pain. They are in charge. They get what they want. They don't have to worry about anybody else. Violence covers them like a garment. They are unassailable. And if you don't recognize it, you should. Because it's just as much a description of our world as it is of Jerusalem of the righteous time. Of systems embodied in people who seem to take no care of others, who are out to look after themselves and their own, who exploit a wealth based on violence and oppression. If we'd read Revelation, what we'd have read about was the whore of Babylon. The whore of Babylon who looks beautiful and entices everybody in and is the antithesis of, of the Jerusalem which is in ruins. The city that is beautiful and irresistible and when threatened, the system when threatened will do whatever it needs to protect herself. 
dropping bombs to secure oil supplies, leveraging aid grants to secure jobs at home, paying people huge bonuses to secure their services in order to sustain things the way they are. Unless we think it is all, the, all them, voting in ways that will make me okay will keep me safe. Accepting power and powers, the powers that be that play to my fears. Play the market, get everything you can for the house, because that will stand you in good stead. And look, everybody's doing it, and it works. Play the field, why not? Everybody does. Why limit your experience and your chances to just one person? Buy the cheapest goods, that way we can have more, and we don't need to worry about what it's doing to the people we can't see. Nobody else does. And what power do they have to hurt us? It is attractive. It works. When I thought how to understand this, says the psalmist, it seemed to me a wearisome task. How do I match? God blesses those who are upright with the fact, the way the world is. There is no way of making it make sense. The promise that God will be good to the upright is not borne out by the experience of living in the world. And worse than that, the experience of living in the world is that living the way we are, living the way we're told God asks us to, leaves us open to abuse and exploitation and defeat and distress. This is disorientation. And we need to recognize it and we need to own it because it is our disorientation too if we take the claims of our faith seriously. We are told, we are committed to, the story we tell in this place and in other churches is of a world which says might is not right, violence does not overcome, oppression is not successful. And then we turn on the news. And if we don't feel confused by the conflict between the claims of our faith and the experience of the world, if we haven't noticed the gap, then we're either not paying attention to the world or we don't really believe this, this stuff. And it's just fairy stories, and we might as well give up gathering here like this and go out and enjoy the world as it really is and be sound and sleek and have our eyes swell with fatness. For how can God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? The psalmist cannot, indeed the psalmist must not stay with, be good and God will bless you. That safe and naive orientation of the beginning of the psalm, and neither can we. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In terms of the world around us, as we encounter it and have to deal with it, to make sense of the faith we own is difficult, is well nigh impossible. Until, says the psalmist, I went into the sanctuary of God. You know, at this point, I wanted to be able to speak of the possibility, the gift of coming into worship and being among the people of God, and the way in which that gives us a clearer vision and opens our eyes to the bigger picture and turns us around to see from a different point of view so that we're no longer dazzled, as the psalmist is no longer dazzled by the power and the oppression and the sleek faces and the arrogance of those who are in charge. I wanted to speak of that, to speak of the reorientation that happens to us when we meet in worship and hear the words of God to us, and when we entrust ourselves, however precariously, to them to define who we are, how we live. And I am going to, but not easily, not naively, and not straightforwardly. Because coming into worship, entering the community of the church, any congregation, not just this one, 
is not to make the step into a totally other world shaped only by the gospel call and unwavering commitment based on the faith that God is good to the upright. Like any community, we are a mixed community. Our own lives are mixed and muddled and we live not only by the values we espouse, and we don't even fully agree on those, but also by the assumptions in the worldview that we imbibe simply by being alive. And we cannot challenge it because we are part of this world that the psalmist is trying to make sense of. Listen to this. If there were only evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, it would be easy. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And again, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And this line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. And so I've come to understand the truth of all religions of this world, that they struggle with the evil inside a human being, inside every human being. It is impossible to expel evil from the world in its entirety. But it is possible to constrict it within each person. That's Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago. This disorientating, this living as the faith claims are... Um, as if uh, uh, this is living as if in here everything's fine and out there is is difficult it's not going to work because it is within us it's not simply that the psalmist comes to worship and everything changes there is another move he recognizes his need to rethink and re-understand and reorientate to be turned around to be converted it's all too easy to blame the system or the setup or even them out there. But the psalmist is clear that actually what's going on here is not changing the world, or at least not directly. It's not that he's now being empowered or permitted to impose his understanding of how things should be. It's not that he's going to choose the path of the wicked and the sleek ones, however attractive. He gives us the clue early on, I was envious of the wicked, he says early in the psalm. He was part of this setup. He was shaped by these ideas, not as an outside force or a system he could overthrow, but because it's part of who he is. And it's made more explicit when he reflects on the experience of coming into the sanctuary. It's not that everything suddenly becomes clear. Or rather, it is that everything suddenly becomes clear. But what becomes clear is his own complicity and guilt and need of rescue. I was embittered. I was stupid. I was like a beast before you. In coming to worship, it's not just that he sees the world differently. He understands himself differently. And that's where it all changes. Because it's no longer, why is this happening? Or I want this. Or even the world should be like that. You hold me. And I have no hope but you. The whole emphasis changes. This is reorientation of painful but a very deep kind. It's conversion and repentance. It's letting go of any sense of entitlement or judgment and recognizing that God holds him. And the issue isn't 
do right and be treated right or keep the rules and receive a reward. It's not even the use of power for the right ends, whatever they may be. Its relationship with God is the meaning of life. And everything falls into place from that. For me, he says, it is good to be near God. The psalm starts with God is good to the upright and continues by questioning why that's not actually so. But the reorientation has little or nothing to do with either right behavior or with blessing. Instead, it's about a love that will not let go. You hold me. It's of the delight of being loved and close to God. And that delight isn't about ease of life or special circumstances that are better than other people's. Certainly not based on doing right things in order to get a pat on the head or the sweeties. It's definitely not in order to defeat others. It's not life in heaven once this horrid world on this horrid life on earth is over. It's living in God and with God and through and for God. That's the life we made for. And we cannot achieve it. It does not come naturally, and it looks stupid in the face of the power structures and the achievements we see around us. And it's not going to overthrow those power structures or give us what the oppressors have, or even stop the author- give us the authority to stop the oppressors. And we cannot make it happen by doing things properly or keeping all the rules. We cannot find it simply by coming into the congregation, because the same patterns that horrify us and disempower us will and do work their way out through us as a congregation. We have our power struggles and our protection of rights and our jealousies and our bitterness. But it is the reorientation that the psalm points us to. It is this narrow way that Jesus talks about. It's not a narrow way of not doing things or only doing certain things. It's about giving up our right of self-determination. And it's not easy and it's not comfortable and it doesn't allow us to feel good about ourselves. Because it's not about what we can do. It is what God does in and through us and for us once we stop trying to be in charge and know ourselves as badly damaged as the others that we judge. For we have no one but God. But God holds us continually and is the strength of our heart and our portion. Therefore, it is good for us to be with God, not for what we can get out of it, but because it is the only way to be alive. This is reorientation as what Jesus talks about, metanoia, repentance, turning around, being converted. It's not something that happens once and brings us into the faith and then everything's all right. In fact, it's the very rejection of that. That's the orientation stand. I'm in well with God and everything's fine. This is conversion. This is metanoia and reorientation as an ongoing, never-ending discovery of life as being loved. Utterly radically, completely loved, not because of who we are, not because of what we do, but because of who God is, the God we know because this God looks like Jesus. This is the God who calls us to the narrow road, the road that isn't identified with the sleek and the powerful, the road that leads out of the city to the hill with a cross on it, and then on to an empty tomb, Because it is the road that is to a life we cannot create or sustain, but which lives in us and through us to the extent we can trust ourselves to it. And yes, it will change the world. And it will challenge injustice and speak for truth and hope. 
but not because that's the right thing to do and therefore we will be blessed, but because that's the way the life is lived. And we're alive only because and only insofar as we entrust ourselves to this. We have nobody but this God. And this God holds us, not because we're good or right or special, but because God loves. Amen.